Hi guys, it's Tash. I just thought I'd give a bit of a disclaimer before we start this episode. We will be talking about the Dyatlov Pass incident, which if you're familiar with does contain some more graphic content. So if you're sensitive to that at all, you might want to give this episode a skip. But if not, let's jump into it. Hello and welcome to Weird Things and Wine, the show where we sip wine and talk about all things weird. My name is Tash. And my name is Mia. And today we will be talking about the Dyatlov Pass incident. Shall we jump right into it? Yes, let's. <laughs> cheers, cheers. The Dyatlov Pass, with its howling wind and icy terrain, is home to one of the greatest tragedies in Russian history. It is also the subject of a very confusing unsolved mystery. It was here that a group of nine young hikers met their untimely demise due to what was later described as an unknown compelling force. Theorists propose many explanations, ranging from strange to even stranger. Could it have been a yeti? Or perhaps the government? Or was it simply natural causes? Let's talk about it. So, should we start this off by talking about each of the nine hikers? Sure. So, Igor Dyatlov was the group's leader, and the pass was later named for him. Because he was the leader of this expedition, and he, from what I understood, got the group together, because not everyone knew everyone else mm-hmm. initially. Because of that, that's why this incident was called the Dyatlov Pass incident. Mm-hmm. Um, so he was just 23 years old, and he was actually a radio engineering student at Ural Polytechnical Institute, which most of these people were a part of. So actually, as a kid, he built shortwave radios, so he was pretty smart, and he was always kind of had the engineer mindset. Mm. I think he was born into a family of pretty smart engineer-type people. Yeah. An interesting fact is that he actually had a bit of a crush on one of the other hikers. We will get into that a little bit more, but that is something to keep in mind. Yes. On a previous expedition, he and his group were almost caught in a herd of wild horses, But due to his quick thinking, they grouped together in kind of a circle, and then the horses just reared around them because they viewed them as a group. Wow. I didn't know that that was a thing that you did. That just kind of shows that they were really quick thinkers, and they were very um, brave, and they worked as a team together. Mm. And Igor was obviously experienced enough to know what to do in any given situation. I'm going to say right off the bat, I'm sorry for the pronunciation of these names. <laughs> I'm not Russian. I don't know how to speak Russian, but I'm going to try my best. That's all that we can ask for, right? I hope so. <laughs> so next up, we have Yuri Doroshenko, who was a 21-year-old, again, a radio engineering student. And apparently, he was Zaneda's ex. So there was no hard feelings between him and Igor or Zaneda, but they were all on this expedition together. So it's interesting to keep in mind that there were some romantic entanglements. Yes. So on this expedition, Zaneda kept a diary. A couple of them kept diaries. Mm-hmm. And on one of the entries, she had mentioned that Yuri was coming along. And I think her words were along the lines of, it'll be interesting, but so far it's okay. And there was at one point where he did something sweet that she almost didn't accept because it was going to be weird so they had a good relationship not not awkward also interesting to keep in mind apparently he had chased off a bear on a previous camping trip yes yeah i thought that was amazing this was one of the things that caught zanaida's attention just to like show how confident how brave and confident this group of young people were he did chase off a bear you could argue that it's you know, brave or stupid 
that could be an argument, <laughs> but it sounded more brave in the account than stupid. It wasn't just him that, oh, look, there's a bear over there. I'm going to go get it. Yeah. It's like, oh my gosh, there's a bear like two feet away from our tent. We need to get make it go away. So he didn't really have a choice. He had to. Pretty much. Yeah. <laughs> Next up, we have Zeneda Komogrova, who was a 22-year-old radio engineering student. She was the one that Igor kind of had a crush on, and mm-hmm. she also reciprocated that crush, so there was a little bit of feelings there, but still um, was on good terms with her ex, Yuri Doroshenko. She also did most of the writing in the hiking journal that they kept in order to keep track of their progress on this trip. All right, next up we have Ludmila Dubanina. She's 20 years old, and she was a construction industry economics student. She was actually shot in the leg on a previous camping trip by accident, and she kept her spirits up and kind of laughed it off and didn't want to put too much of the burden on her hiker friends, just to like show how, again, how like brave and confident yes. these people were. <laughs> the accounts that I read, she seemed like someone that you would want as part of your team if you were going anywhere that you guys maybe weren't familiar with or you haven't experienced quite before. Like, she was who you wanted there. Mm-hmm. Very resourceful. Um, next up, we have Yuri Krivonishenko, and there's a couple of Yuris, so we're going to have to use their last names to keep them in order. He was 23 years old, and he was a construction and hydraulic student. He also was a friend of Igor's. Yeah. They had gone on a couple hikes for this experience. He was pretty into music. He actually carried a mandolin for a while on the hike before they had to leave it behind when the conditions got too rough, but that just kind of shows, like, this wasn't just a, we have to do this hike and we have to get it done. They were having fun and enjoying themselves and being a group of friends. But they were smart enough to leave the mandolin behind when they actually had to. He previously was involved in what was called the Kishtim disaster, which happened on September 29th, 1957, where a nuclear plant experienced a leak. And he was part of the team sent in to clean up the leak. Interesting to enough that not much later, he ended up abruptly leaving his employment at the plant, stating that it was due to complete unwillingness to work in this system. It's really interesting to think about how actually young they were, because I can't imagine any of the 20-year-olds that I know being qualified for that job. Yeah, no. (laughs) I know I'm not qualified for that job. (laughs) Next up, Alexander Kolevitov, who is a 24-year-old nuclear physics student. He's an interesting one because though the group had actually sworn off of smoking cigarettes or anything on the trip, he kept smoking tobacco out of an antique pipe. (laughs) Cool! (laughs) So the group wasn't super happy with him about that. He actually also, I've heard that he wouldn't share his journal entries with the group, although I don't think anything was found in the journal entries that would be sensitive at all. I mean, interesting that they wanted him to share his journal entries with the group. (laughs) Yeah. (laughs) So next up, we have Rustem Slobodin. He was 23 years old, and he had actually already graduated with a mechanical engineering degree. Which is insane. (laughs) Again, very ambitious and very smart. Mm -hmm. Driven. He was the son of a wealthy professor, so he'd actually kind of come from money. Next up, we have Nikolai Thibault-Brignols. I'm sorry if I butchered that name. It's French and Russian. So mm-hmm. He was 23 years old, and he had already also graduated with a degree in industrial civic construction. 
And there are reports that he had promised his mother that this would be his last or last time. Oh, that's track. very sad. I think his grandfather or his great-grandfather was French, which is why he has French last name. We're just going to call him Nikolai because that's easier to say. Yeah. <laughs> I believe from some of the reports that I read, he, in some cases, was considered a bit of an outcast because of his slightly different background from the others. Mm-hmm. You know, there being some French influence in his family. Mm-hmm. There were a couple occasions that I read about he was given a bit of a tough time. We have to, like, remember this was in the middle of the Cold War, mm-hmm. and tensions were a little bit high, especially this with outsiders. True. Poor guy. Yeah. Okay, next up we have an interesting one. I have him down as Semyon in my notes, but he also goes as Alexander or Sasha. He has a few different names. He gave the group a fake name. Okay. There's I mean, a- you do you, dude. <laughs> There's a little bit of fishiness surrounding this guy. I don't really believe any of the reports, and I don't really want to, like, sully the memory of this group. Yeah. I think the group called him Sasha. Okay. So we can call him Sasha. Yeah. He was 38 years old, so he was the oldest of the group and had actually Mm -hmm. joined kind of after the fact because a hiking plan that he had with his hiking group fell through, so we joined up with this one. A few of the group members weren't super happy about that initially, but he seemed to have fit in pretty well. Yeah, and I think they liked his experience, too. They thought he could bring some important experience to the team. He was also a World War II veteran, which is interesting to note. Yes. (laughs) He also was the only one of the group who had tattoos. Which, while it's a pretty commonplace oh. thing now, I don't think it was Not so much back, back in the then. day. Yeah. But he was apparently, like, pretty covered in tattoos. So he looked like a tough guy. He was a tough guy. Yeah. He seemed like a tough guy. Last up, we have Yuri Yudin, who was a 21-year-old, again, a student at the Polytechnical Institute. But he had to leave the hike early due to uh, pre-existing illnesses he had. He had a lot of health issues, specifically knee and joint pain, so he mm-hmm. had to turn back before they started the skiing. So he's interesting because he knows a lot about the actual group and their plan, mm-hmm. but he was the only survivor. I do recall him at some point going through with investigators pieces of evidence stating, yes, this was part of our stuff, or no, I don't know where this came from. He actually lived quite a while. He died in 2013, so not that long ago. But still before they reopened the case. Yeah, they did that in 2019. 2019. Officially. So this Uh. entire group, they're kind of described as lighthearted, but also very tough and very experienced. And I think that kind of comes through in these stories of the previous hikes that they've been on. All of these people had such, like, high-ranking experience. Like, Igor was a radio engineering student who already, like, built radios as a kid. Kolobatov was a nuclear physics student. Like They're very smart. Very seriously. smart, very dedicated, and very ambitious. And I think collectively, with everything that this team had experienced individually, they were pretty unstoppable altogether. It seems like it, yeah. Because they all experienced such different things that when you put it all together, they were pretty indestructible. Individually, they seemed like they could handle themselves, and together, mm-hmm. they seemed like they could handle pretty much anything. Anything. They also, most of them knew each other and had and had hiked together before. I think Igor knew all of them except for Sasha pretty well. He was pretty much the link, again, apart from Sasha. Okay, let's jump into a bit of background info on this unsolved mystery. <clears throat> so, the Diatlov Pass was, as we said, 
named for the group's leader. Uh, it's located on Mount Polat Siakal. It's interesting to note that the Mansi people, the indigenous people in the area, refer to it as the Mountain of the Dead. Many others have perished there. The terrain is tundra, so there isn't a lot of life, be it peoples that live there or animals that live there. So this mountain is part of the Ural Mountains, which at its highest point can be 6,200 feet. So the region that they were found on went, was it was around 3,500 feet, which is important to note for the theories later. The group was also on their way to Mount Ortorten, which is about six miles away from where they passed. They were very close. I mean, it's all uphill and in the snow. <laughs> so it's six miles is like a lot longer than it seems. So they were all kind of part of the hiking club in their school that actually gave out these class three certifications, which were the highest certification that you could get in hiking in Russia at the time. And this entailed that they must hike 180 miles or 300 kilometers over at least 16 days. Half of that must be in uninhabited territory and 62 miles must be in difficult terrain. Which sounds really tough. It sounds awful. Kind of, yeah. I can't even like hike for a mile without getting tired <laughs> in like good weather. Same, yes. <laughs> So they were an incredibly dedicated mm, and, and ambitious group. It's important to note that at least three of them had led their own expeditions prior to this. Not just been part of a team, they were the leaders. A part of this class three certification was that they had to document their hike in diaries and photos. So there's actually a lot of pictures of this group. And they look really young. Mm-hmm. And the diaries that they kept as well were fairly detailed. A lot of the theorists that came up with their movements day-to-day and the timeline, they got it from piecing together their different diaries. Um, their route was also approved beforehand, and it was an apparently very difficult time of year to attempt. It's the most difficult time of year, so they really wanted a challenge. Yes, they were going for it, and they were really going for it. In the photos, they take a lot of photos that seemed like they were for the hiking expedition and a lot of ones that were just kind of goofing off. They seemed like a fun-loving bunch who, like, were enjoying this experience, although I can't imagine why they would be. (laughs) Sounds awful. Not my choice of recreation activities. And it showed that they were really like a team. Yeah, they they had to get along. Yeah, exactly. So they had to take a train to get there for over 300 miles, and then a bus for 45 miles, and then a truck for 25 miles before they actually could start hiking and skiing. It was a big journey. It was a long journey. It took quite a while to get there. It took them four days before they actually could start their journey. Okay, shall we talk about the series of events? Let's get into it. So they left the Polytechnical Institute on January 23rd, 1959, the that day that their hiking route was approved. That was day one. They took a train from Sverdlovsky to Surov. Pronunciation will be askew, the best that I can do. January 24th, day two, they arrived at Surov, where Krivonoshenko was detained for being too noisy. At one point during their wait at the train station, he began to start singing one of his favorite songs. 
I think to just help lift the spirits up because they had started off later than they expected. So their trip was a little bit later than they had planned on it being. Okay. So he was trying to raise the spirits. The authorities didn't like that because this was a, it was a quiet town. They didn't want anyone messing it up. So he was detained there. Do you know how long he was detained for? A couple hours. Okay. Not long. Not long. But enough to make it a significant piece of event. Right. Enough to kind of scare them into being quiet for the rest of their yeah. trip <laughs> in this town. On day three, which is January 25th, they took the train to Ivdel in Vrdlovsky, um, where they stayed overnight and then took a truck ride to Vizhei. And this is where Dyatlov sent his telegram, because that was another requirement for them. Let the university know when they reached their checkpoints. He also sent a postcard for his father, and Zineda sent a letter to her family. So Vishay is actually where they were supposed to kind of round trip back. That was where they were going to go back to to send their telegrams and regroup after their trip. Their estimated date of arrival back which I'm, I'm sure we're going to get into more, but it was February 12th. So they had two and a half weeks to make this whole trip. Do you have anything about the 27th? I just have that they started their trek to Gora or Torten. That was the main mountain that they were headed to, but they had to go through Polat Vehicle. That was, the I think, the first mountain they had to traverse in order to get to Mount Torten. On January 28th, Yuri Yudin had to turn back due to several ailments, including joint pain, which we have already touched mm. upon, which led him to be the only survivor of this group. I feel bad for Yuri Yudin having to turn back because he really, really wanted this to be a thing that he could do. Yes. I mean, I think he was halfway there, essentially. So the others continued to trek following the river. They followed the river to get to, essentially... The next mountain. It was during the days between the 28th and the 30th. According to the plan, they intended to leave a stock of supplies in a, a shop there. Like I said, according to their initial plan, they intended to leave some supplies at a shop in one of the little towns that they visited on their way. But there are some other accounts that suggest they ended up actually building some sort of shelter okay. in the woods where they ended up leaving half of their supplies because they didn't want to have to take it all the way to their end destination. They wanted some supplies to be hidden away for the way back. Yeah, exactly. So then on February 1st, they started their trek through the pass. From what I read, they had 2.5 miles of steep incline and forest to get to before they were able to get to their base. Investigators pieced together the timeline through some of their diaries so, one diary said that around 4 p.m., they ended up arriving at the base of Polad Siakl, which was around 10 miles away from their final destination. Okay. So, they had wanted to get through the pass in the one day that they had to do it, but that didn't end up happening. After they went past the tree line, they had to pack up and camp on the side of the incline because they didn't want to backtrack and lose the altitude that they had gained. And they couldn't make it all the way to the other side because the weather was really bad. Yeah, as if you've seen some of the photos, there's one photo that you can see how badly it was snowing. Ferociously. When they stopped, they realized that they'd actually gone off course just a little bit. So they weren't actually able to get to where they wanted to be. 
even though I found some accounts that said photos taken around this time showed that they were still in pretty high spirits, despite mm-hmm. having to make this unscheduled camp. Also, these were a group of experienced hikers. They knew the risks of staying on the incline and not going back to seek shelter, but they also knew how to do it properly and make sure that they weren't in the path of any hazards. I also want to mention that on this night, apparently the moon was a quarter full but waning, so it wasn't that bright. They couldn't see very well. I have that temperatures at this night were between minus 10 and minus 15 with a wind chill or with wind of about five kilometers an hour. So it would have felt like it was between minus 18 and minus 20. I dived into hypothermia quite a lot. And what makes it so tough is when there's wind. Because the wind will take away the little aura of heat that you have, (laughs) which makes the cold just seep right in. So had the wind not have been there, significantly more manageable. It was really windy that night, so it would have been hard to keep a fire going, too. So like we've said, they were supposed to be back in Vichy on uh, February 12th, and they were supposed Mm -hmm. to send telegrams to all their friends and family and Yuri. But when Yuri left the group, they were actually a few days behind, three days behind to be specific. Mm -hmm. So he wasn't that concerned when they didn't send him a message that day. So it took them a while to kind of mobilize. So I think one of the hikers had even told their families, I want to say it was Dyatlov that told his family that he expected that the hike might take a little bit longer. So to expect a telegram between the 12th and the 14th. And they waited essentially until the 20th. Yes, that's when search parties were sent out, right? Yeah. This came after the relatives put enough pressure on the authorities and on the university to say, they're not back yet. This doesn't make sense. Yeah, it took quite a bit to get the actual search party going. And initially, the army wasn't included in this and the military wasn't mobilized, but eventually they joined the search as well. Initially, it was just a group of volunteers from the university and surrounding areas. And this um, group of volunteers also included some of the local indigenous Nazi people, which is important to notice for the future. Yes, for the theories. On February 26th, their tent was found partially collapsed in the snow. So I found that people on foot didn't actually make the first sighting. It was due to the helicopters that they dispatched, that they actually found their camp. So initially, they thought that the tent was cut open from the outside, like someone was trying to get in. But after some examination, they realized that cuts actually came from inside the tent. So they were trying to tear their way out instead of using the door for some reason. Yes. Scary thing number one. First of all, these are an experienced group of people who know that cutting their tent is bad course of action no matter how scared they are. What was preventing them from being able to... Just get out of the door. Yeah, was something blocking it? Was something in front of it? Were they Mm. just not close enough and they got so scared that they had to cut it open? There is a picture of how the tent was found. So specifically, this picture was used in one of the sites that I found to show that there wasn't an avalanche. In one of the hikers' photographs, this thing was sticking out of the ground exactly the same amount as it is in this photo from the investigators. So it must have been collapsed just because of the snowfall, the regular snowfall, not avalanche or anything. Between them cutting through the integrity of the tent and the winds from that evening and the following days and the snowfall, I think that's what ended up collapsing it. Some of the searchers said that the tent wasn't set up completely properly. 
which is a weird thing to think about when you consider the expertise level of this group. And I keep on mentioning how experienced they were, but I just want to reiterate, this seems so unlikely. I've heard some reports saying things that seem kind of like, oh, they were unprepared, they weren't ready for this, they were young and inexperienced, and I, no. I don't believe that at all. When you look into their background, their experience, they knew what they were getting themselves into, they knew what they were doing, they had the certification to be able to carry this out, and the tools. There's no way that they weren't prepared. Yeah, I just don't believe that at all. So, the tent being messed up could have maybe been some accidental tampering with evidence? I don't know, why would they be messing with the tent, right? Yes, what purpose? So it kind of begs the question, was there somebody else afterward? Yeah. I also want to say that even though the tent was damaged from the outside, the inside was actually in pretty good condition. Their stuff was where it should have been. There were apparently some slices of ham even left out. It kind of seemed like they were in the middle of dinner, or making dinner when this event happened, whatever happened. And apparently there were knives and stuff that for some reason they left behind and didn't take for weapons. So I believe the knife that either cut the tent or cut the branches was not found. They couldn't find it. They also found two sets of tracks leading away together from the tent and then kind of got lost in the snow and they found other footprints kind of like they had scattered. So when they ran, they didn't stay together as a group, Mm -hmm. which is weird. And some of the reports that I read said that the tracks didn't look like they were frantically like sprinting away from the tent. Some places it looked like they could have been running, and some places looked like they were just walking. I read that the footprints indicated a normal walking pace, mm. which is mm-hmm. all weird. Like, mm-hmm. that doesn't make any sense. Something happened and they calmly went, split off into groups and then regroup, and we're all going the same direction. I think that's what, like, gets to me the most. Because you can easily tell when someone's running and when someone's walking due to their footprints. Yes. It just makes no sense to me. No. Like, in no scenario can I see these people walking away casually from their tent. Especially after manically destroying their tent beforehand with knives to get out. Shall we get into how the group members were found? Okay. Okay, so first up, on February 26th, the same day that they found the tent, they found Yuri Doroshenko and Yuri Krivonoshenko. Yeah. And they were actually found partially buried in the snow by the tree line. Neither of them were wearing jackets or shoes or pants and were surrounded by broken branches. So some reports that I read said that the branches were underneath them, and some said that they were on top. Like maybe they had fallen? Yeah. But I'm more likely to believe that they were found on top of the branches instead of underneath of them all. Doroshenko was lying face down, but Krivonoshenko was lying face up. So he was actually missing his eyes. And they were thought to be taken by animals. Although that seems kind of weird to me. Why would they take his eyes and not attack him or anything? It's suspected that Doroshenko was moved after he had passed. Because the blood that pools after you pass away did not match the position that he was found in. And I do have a total description of the the wounds that he had. So both of these men were found with abrasions to their hands. Pretty intense abrasions. Yes. And Krivonoshenko, this is really gruesome, but I feel like it's important to mention, 
He was found with a piece of his knuckle skin in his mouth. Almost like he was maybe biting it to keep awake or warm. So there's a couple like thoughts on this. Was he biting it to keep himself quiet? Was he biting it because he was hanging like hugging the tree and it was so cold because he wasn't dressed warm enough that his hands were going numb and he was trying to wake up his hands. When you said that he was thought to have been moved, do they think that maybe he was moved by the searchers or before? There are a lot of theories, (laughs) but it's mostly believed that he was moved by the other hikers who took more of his clothes because the two of them were only found pretty much in their undergarments with no socks or mittens or hats. Yuri Yudin did clarify that these clothes belong to these clothes and these clothes belong to these people. People, yeah. Yeah, you know what I meant. Yeah. Um, So it did seem like the last four that were found did gather some of the clothes from the others. One more thing on Doroshenko. He had a foamy gray fluid on his right cheek, which can occur from immense pressure on the chest cavity. For example, if he fell really, really far from the tree, that could have happened. Even though he did have signs, outward, or inward signs, I guess, of the pressure on his chest, the cause of death, for him at least, was hypothermia. So apparently none of his injuries were life-threatening. This is Doroshenko that we're talking about, so... He did not have any broken bones. Oh, that's weird. That's why his injuries weren't considered life-threatening and why there's some speculation as to if this fluid was caused from him falling far because he didn't have signs like bruising like he would if he fell from high up in the places you'd expect and he didn't have broken ribs as if he fell from a high place. Also, the branches were only broken up to five meters high, which is pretty high if you're falling from, but it's not enough Definitely. to... I don't think it's enough to cause that type of injury. No. Kravonashenko had third-degree burns. You cannot sustain burns if you are not alive. There were remnants of a fire found around them. Yeah, so some pieces of burned clothing and an actual proof of a fire. But they probably couldn't keep it going due to the wind. There were some reports that suggested the top of a couple of those trees in that area, the very top, was singed. Though that's not confirmed in the official report. The tree beside them had, like we said, branches broken up to five meters high, and bits of skin were actually found in the woods. So they were trying desperately, it seemed, to climb up this tree to maybe see if they could see their uh, tent, Mm -hmm. or maybe to get away from something. Both thoughts are scary. Don't like that. Also, the fire that they made, apparently there were signs that it lasted about two hours. So they had a fire going for a while. For a while, yes. Some people suggest that the branches that were found on the ground were not the right kind for a fire. Like, it was a tree that had too much sap in it, which would have just not burned. And some argue that because they were experienced hikers, they should have known this and not gone for this specific type of tree, if that's what they were using it for. So the same people that also suggested that these trees were not conducive for the fire also suggested that the branches they found were, like, thick enough and strong enough to the point that they should have been able to hold the weight of one or two humans. So they shouldn't have broken. Exactly. They should not have broken. So 
I'm not going to get into the injuries that they suffered, but Kravonashenko suffered worse injuries than um, Doroshenko did. Okay. He didn't have any broken bones, but he did have some internal bleeding, specifically around the temporal lobes. Yeah, that's something interesting about this, is that most of them don't have outward signs of injuries, but they have internal injuries. Some cases, severe internal injuries. Both of them did have frostbite. And to be honest, all of my bruises pretty much are the same color. Unless they're like really, really bad, deep bruises, and then they're a darker purple. But generally speaking, they're all kind of the same. Yeah. Two colors, really. But Kravonashenko had three. He had a pale red color, a darker red color, and a pink and brown red color. That's very specific. I don't know what the different colors mean. Kravonashenko had three wounds with sharp corners on the inner side of the upper third of his left hip, like the inner thigh. But they were three wounds like a scratch mark. I actually really don't like that. Like, I actually really don't like that at all. Okay, so where were they? On his hip? On the inner side of the upper third of his left thigh. Okay, I'm going to say something now because I don't believe this theory at all. There is a theory that there was romantic entanglements that somehow had gotten out of hand and that they had all gotten mad at each other and stormed out of the tent. So that kind of makes sense for that theory. So the official description of this injury is three linear skin lesions with straight edges, sharp corners, and a depth of up to 0.3 centimeters on the inner side of the upper third of his thigh. What would that be? Like, all I can think about is somebody scratching. I don't think anyone, though, had nails. No, they were hikers. They wouldn't have nails. Yeah, exactly. (laughs) And what are the chances that you can get three of the same with, like, a knife wound? It didn't say that it occurred after death. That was not something that was mentioned here. It was just noted that this was something that he had. I knew this case was weird, but I didn't know it was this weird. So, Kravonashenko, despite the various wounds that he had, his cause of death was determined to be hypothermia as well. So, both of the Yuris died of hypothermia, officially. Should we Uh, move on to the next group of people? Okay. (laughs) Okay. So, they actually had search dogs. And on February 27th, the day after the two Yuris were found, two dogs found Igor Dyatlov. So, Dyatlov was roughly 300 meters from the fire in the direction of the tent. So, he was actually found, again, half-buried in the snow, and he had his arms wrapped around a small tree. It looked like maybe he was trying not to fall down, but he was also facing towards the tent, so he kind of knew where he was supposed to be going. So, Dyatlov was wearing more clothes than the two Yuris. He was also wearing a vest given to him by Yuri Yudin. Yudin then confirmed that he did, in fact, give this to Dyatlov. He also had specifically four anti-inflammatory pills on him. Like a Tylenol or something? I think so. Okay. Although he was dressed more warmly, he still wasn't wearing shoes or a hat or gloves, but he did have a jacket on. Mm -hmm. And he did have one cotton sock on the left foot and one woolen sock on the right foot. A number of these folks were found wearing more than one layer of socks on them. He might have just lost the socks on the left foot and taken the second sock from the right foot to put on the left. Okay, that makes sense. But again, like, these people were so freaked out that they tore open their tent, 
didn't grab their shoes or any weapons, but walked mm-hmm. casually away into the woods. And in their walking to the woods, they also didn't stick together in a pack. There is proof that the footprints branched out. Not specifically with them all going their own direction, but with, you know, three people here, two people here, two people here. So, Dyatlov had no internal injuries, or no major internal injuries. He did have a number of abrasions and bruises to the outside, and it was found that he had vomited blood at some point, but there's no explanation as to why. You mentioned that he had anti-inflammatory pills on him. Well, I guess it could have been a reaction. There was pretty significant amount of time between the autopsies and when this happened, but were they able to find any evidence of that he had taken an anti-inflammatory pill? I actually didn't see that noted okay. anywhere. I'm wondering if he had them on him just coincidentally because he just had them, or whether yeah, he just grabbed them when he left the tent. That's a good point. I don't know. He had some abrasions to his mouth. He was missing a tooth. Did he swallow the tooth? Is that why there was blood in his vomit? Because he had lost a tooth? He had some abrasions to his ankles. He had one 0.5 centimeter abrasion and three 2.5 centimeter abrasions. So some really deep cuts on his ankle. But he also wasn't wearing shoes. Could that have been because of the snow? Because snow, when it gets hard, it can be pretty icy. Yeah. You can get little slits of ice, which will cut you pretty easily. Hemorrhaging was supposed to be the underlying issue that started this. Hemorrhaging is what happens when you bleed too much. Is that what hemorrhaging is, when you don't stop bleeding? I think so. One more thing to note on Dyatlov. He had a number of bruises on his right arm. So a number of bruises, or abrasions and bruises, on his forearm and on his palm and on the back of his hand, which you see often in hand-to-hand combats. Is there anything about his hands, like his knuckles having bruises? So he had a lot of bruises on his face. Okay. He had bruises on his knees, ankles, lots of scratches, abrasions to the forehead, upper eyelids. There was a single incision, which was four by two centimeters deep, in the lower third of his right tibia. Lots of scratches on the lower third of his right forearm and palm surface. Purple gray discoloration on the backside of his right hand. Okay. And then it says this is a common injury in hand to hand fights. Yeah. Well, I'm thinking if you're punching somebody, you'd have bruises on your knuckles, especially his right hand if he's right handed. Mm-hmm. But if he was in a fight with somebody, there would be bruises on his face, like there is. He also had, on his left hand, his whole left hand was brownish-purple in color, with brownish-red bruises, superficial wounds on the second and fifth finger, and some other wounds to the palm side of the second and fifth finger. I'm thinking, like, again, this kind of brings into question... Because there were some romantic entanglements, maybe that kind of got out of hand and there was Mm -hmm. a fight that broke out. It doesn't really make sense. I don't think it would have happened, but they are young people. Yeah, and and sometimes emotions can run high. Zaneda had in her diary, she had noted that Doroshenko had offered her his mittens at some point near this time. And she nearly refused because she thought it was inappropriate. And then he said, no, it's it's not in that way. I, I'm here as a friend. And I think she did end up taking them. 
So if Dyatlov and Zaneda were both interested, it's possible that Dyatlov could have gotten upset at what um, Doroshenko did, but Doroshenko didn't have wounds on him as if he was in a fight. But you also couldn't really tell because his hands are so beat But also, I don't think that this happened. Like, I just, I really don't. No, neither do I. I think they were all too close-knit, and they knew the circumstances they were in. Like, it's too dangerous for them to bring that stuff up right then and there where they were. They didn't seem like the type of people who would let their emotions get to them in any sort of way. So the cause of deaths that we're talking about are all in the first inquiry so far. And Dyatlov's cause of death was hypothermia. So that same day, on February 27th, the dogs also found Zaneda, who is also buried in a thin layer of snow. And it looked like she was in the middle of climbing towards a tent. And she actually had blood on her face. I wasn't able to find whether it was hers or someone else's. It was probably hers. I don't know if they had the technology back then to really dig into that. She also was dressed warmly with a hat, but mm-hmm. no shoes. Again, no shoes. Nobody was wearing shoes. Pretty much no one was wearing shoes. The one person yeah. who was wearing shoes has one shoe. <laughs> Zanetta was found with a quote-unquote baton-shaped bruise on her waist. Like she had been hit by a baton, or it was just shaped like a baton? It was shaped like someone hit her with a baton. Did they have batons? There was no proof that they brought batons with them. Like a police baton. Like Ooh. a military I honestly was picturing, like, a bat or, like, a police baton. That's what I was picturing when they when I read this. Which would also explain the fighting boots that Igor Dialov had. Because if he was romantically entangled with her, or, you know, just anyone in his group, he would have stood up for them, right? Yeah. So, Zaneda was wearing much more clothes. Three pairs of socks, but no shoes, like you said. She also had some abrasions on her face, specifically on the left side. So abrasions were specifically on the left side, bruises were on the right side. Back of both hands, there were wounds with jagged edges. She suffered from frostbite. She had a long, bright red bruise, which was 29 by 6 centimeters on the lumbar region of the right side of her torso. So this is the baton-shaped wound. Very It's a detailed. huge wound. Also, yeah. If you hit your knuckles hard enough, they're going to split and they're going to be jagged. Maybe yeah. they had whacked her knuckles. Oh, whacked her knuckles. I don't... Yeah. Okay, this is like getting into the theory that maybe the military somehow had tracked them down for no reason other than maybe they were just in the wrong place. At the wrong time. time. So I will say right now, I believe that more than one thing happened to these folks because that's the only way to explain how... They were really found in three groups. And they were all, the injuries were so varied. So different from group to group and person to person. Yeah. So I really do believe that more than one thing happened to this group. Zaneda's cause of death was determined to be hypothermia due to violent accident. What is that? I don't know what that means. Like, was it a violent accident or was it hypothermia? Can you put more than one cause as to, or was it like the accident, the violent accident caused her to not be coherent enough? And then she suffered from hypothermia. That's what I understood, which still doesn't make sense. They're just trying to, like, make it seem like it was an avalanche. Yeah. A week later, about (laughs) on March 5th, they found Rustem. He was wearing lots of socks, and he was the only one who actually was wearing any shoes at all, but he only was wearing one shoe. That begs the question, did he have the other shoe on and somehow lost it? Although I think that would be a priority. 
It also looked like he was heading towards the tent. So mm-hmm. all three of them, Igor, Zaneda, and Rustam, they all kind of knew where their tent was and were in the process of heading back there. So now that we have gotten to the third member of the second group found, like I said, Diatlov was found 300 meters away from the fire. Rustam was found 180 meters away from Diatlov. And Zaneda was found 150 meters away from Rustam. They were found not together, but all in the same, essentially, line, heading towards the tent. Which one was the closest to the tent? Zaneda. So, Rustam was found with melted snow near his face, indicating that he was alive when he had collapsed, because he had hollowed out the snow with his breath. He also had blunt force trauma to his head on both sides, like he had fallen repeatedly, or maybe someone had hit him. I have the same thing. Like you said, Rustam had some serious skull trauma that some argue can be explained by him just suffering initially a blow to the head, which then caused him to be so disoriented he just kept falling down. But some argue that that's not possible. Also, they're in the middle of a snowstorm. The snow on the ground is pretty fresh. It wouldn't bruise his head that way. Yeah. Like you said, he was found wearing quite a bit of clothes. He, in fact, was wearing four pairs of socks. And he had two shoe insoles on his chest under his sweater. Like, he took the insoles out of a shoe. Why? I'm assuming for insulation. Do you think he had the other shoe? I kind of think that more people had shoes on when they left. And in the events that panicked them, they lost their shoes. Like, I think that's what happened with Rustam. He had his shoes and somehow lost one, but I think that he took the insoles out beforehand, but I don't know if they were from the pair of shoes that he would have been wearing or from someone else's shoes. In that situation, the last thing my mind would go to is tearing out the insoles of my shoes and putting them on my chest to keep warm. Yeah. I don't know if that's a thing that is known as a technique in hiking. I did look up a couple government websites on what to do for hypothermia. That was not a suggestion I found. It's kind of strange. I understand if you're going to take your insoles out and stuff them somewhere, why do you stuff them on like your the chest part of your body? Because it's where your heart is, it's where your lungs are. But he's also wearing four pairs of socks. Why wouldn't he just... Yeah, I didn't think of it that way. Rustam had skull trauma that could not be explained by clumsiness. He had in his pockets a small folding pocket knife, a pencil, a pen, a comb, a box of matches, and one cotton sock. So interesting that he took the shoe insoles to pad his chest and not a cotton sock that was in his pocket. He also had hemorrhaging in his temples, a couple of abrasions to his face. He had a brownish-red bruise on the upper eyelid of the right eye. So, like, he got punched in the eye, almost, but he didn't have it below his eye, it was only above, with, again, hemorrhaging in the underlying tissues, and he had bruises on both of his hands, so bruised knuckles, again, the same thing, like, in hand-to-hand combat. Also had some bruising on his left arm and his palm, he had bruises on his left tibia, pretty large ones, and his endometrius is torn from the right forearm. And he is the first person, I believe, to have essentially a fracture in his skull. So he was pretty beat up. He was pretty beat up. Cause of death at this time was specifically suggested the skull fracture was done with a blunt object. Following that, he probably suffered a loss of coordination, speeding up his death of hypothermia. 
So some of the reports that I read explained this explanation as, as they were all running out, someone hit him on the head or he fell and knocked his head on like a rock or a tree stump and was having a really tough time because he was not disoriented and it damaged part of his brain. And a lot of similar cases, specifically with athletes that suffer like brain damage, they don't show signs for a little while after the accident. So you don't know that they're experiencing something until they really show serious signs. So it could be explained that, again, he hit his head on something and was able to continue with the group down to the fire and then back up to the tent. And on his way back up, he started exhibiting signs that he suffered from brain damage or trauma to his head by falling over, which could explain the repeated gashes on his face um, and on his arms. So on May 5th, the last group of people were found, and it was Ludmila, Alexander, Nikolai, and Sasha. They were all actually buried under four meters of snow in a ravine. So they were found quite a bit after the other ones, two months after the other groups. And they actually were found because of the spring thaw that was happening. Mm -hmm. So they ended up being found when a young Manta tribe member and his dog went out for a walk in the spring thaw. And his dog found the first of them. So at this point, all the search parties were... Oh yeah, the search parties had given up. After they discovered these four, they were transported back with helicopters, which is an important fact that we are going to talk about a little bit later. After they found the bodies, they were obviously investigating the area. So they had found a pile of branches by a tree close to the ravine that looked like they had actually been cut by a knife. Which is odd. And near this, they actually found clothes that were shredded as if to make bandages, maybe. That's kind of when they realized that this group of people had probably stumbled upon their group members and found them unfortunately deceased and taken their clothes to keep warm or make bandages. It looked like from where this pile of branches and clothes were found that they had kept running and ended up 75 meters further away. So Ludmilla actually had bandages on her left foot. And I think the others also had bandages as well. This remaining four, the term or the name for where they were found became known as the Dyatlov Den. This area that they ended up creating was a common way to survive harsh winter conditions under less than preferable circumstances. So they created sort of like a snow den to keep themselves warm. So the pile of branches that they had, they'd specifically cut down from a tree, it's theorized, and placed as like a bed, as a way to keep distance between themselves and the cold ground. Okay. Yeah. Does it seem like they maybe survived like maybe even a few days after? I think that they definitely survived quite a bit after the others, but coroners determined the time of death for the first five by their stomach contents, at what stage of digesting it they were at. So that's how they determined who died first. But I could not find what stage the remaining four were at. If they still had those stomach contents in them, because if it had been a couple days, they would still have the same remnants. They would have passed through. The next point that I have is this specific act of creating the Dyatlov Den argues that at least this group was not panicked by fear. They also had Sasha there, who was probably more experienced than the other group as a World War II veteran and somebody who's older. Yes. Like you said, they cut branches down with a knife that was not found. 
when they mentioned that they were cut by a knife, it doesn't look like they were trying to make anything, right? It just looks like they were cut down. Yeah, yeah. Interesting to note, there apparently was a notepad that one of them had, and the main official on the case, who was there at the time, he was the one who found the notepad and exclaimed, oh, there's, it's blank, or there's nothing on it, or something like that. But it never was turned into evidence as proof. There were two other officials that claimed to witness this man finding the notepad and going, oh, it's blank, but it disappeared after that. Mm-hmm. It would have been pretty waterlogged. Too. Oh, yeah. Yeah, definitely could have been blank <laughs> if there was something written on it. It could have gone through too much water that it just was blank. They were found near a stream, and Ludmilla had her face in the stream, which seems like an odd way to pass. Yes. I imagine she didn't put her face in the stream voluntarily. On purpose, yeah. The thing with the stream is, I don't know if it was an established stream, or if it was only established because of spring thaw. She's, like, the hardest to think about because of the extent of her injuries. Agreed. She was wearing the sweater and the pants of Kravonshenko, who was one of the first two found wearing just pretty much his undergarments. She also appeared to have taken off a sweater, cut it into pieces, wrapped it around one foot, but lost the other half that she cut. She was missing most of the soft tissue on her face, including her eyes and her tongue. She also had some damaged tissue around the left temporal bone, 4 by 4 centimeters, this abrasion was. She had a broken nose, her teeth and upper jaw were exposed, and her tongue was missing. On the right side of her body, the second, third, fourth, and fifth rib were all fractured. On the left side, there were two separate fracture lines. On the second, third, fourth, fifth, sixth, and seventh ribs. Pretty much all of her ribs on the left side were broken in two places. This group of four people, their internal injuries were a lot worse than any of the others significantly worse. It's theorized that they could have fallen into this ravine and injured themselves in that way, but besides the internal injuries, there's not that many outward injuries, right? Yeah. So specifically, two of them suffered from severely fractured ribs, which the coroner stated were similar to what you would see in a severe car accident with a pedestrian. Yes, about the car going, I think it was 30 miles per hour, Yeah, which is like 50 kilometers, I think. Also, he clarified specifically that these injuries could not have been caused by a human. I don't know how deep this ravine was. We don't know, because there weren't pictures taken of the ravine when they got there, so we don't know what it looked like when there was so much snow. But we do have pictures of what it was when they found it. It was a pretty considerable ravine. So, like we said, she had a lot of broken ribs. Massive hemorrhaging on the heart's right atrium, in the heart right's atrium, sorry, and a huge bruise in the middle of her left thigh. An important fact to note is that when she was found, she had a dark brown mass in her stomach, which is arguably proof that her heart was still beating when her tongue was removed. Also, apparently the tongue carries radioactive traces quite well, as does the eyes. I didn't know that. But she was also lying face down in a creek, so it's very possible that the soft tissue in her face just kind of deteriorated. Very awful to think about, but... Mm -hmm. 
So it's also interesting to me that in only one of the cases could I find anyone talking about how their blood pooled, which would signal if someone was moved after death. You mean like internally or outwardly? Internally. I could not find that for Jubanina, which I thought would have been crucial to determining how her situation was. How was she laying? When she passed, was she laying face down? It's weird to me that a lot of these people were laying face down when they passed because Mm -hmm. that's not normal. It makes sense to me for the first five because the survivors did come back and take their clothes. Right. Right? So that makes sense to me. Even though this group had found clothes from their friends, none of them still had shoes. Where are all their shoes? I mean, their shoes are in the tent, but like... Why? Are they in the tent? Actually, are they for sure in the tent? Actually, I couldn't find anything of whether all their shoes were in the tent. I know some Neither of them were, <laughs> but I don't know if all of them were. Yes. So her cause of death was stated as due to the hemorrhaging of the right atrium of the heart, along with the multiple fractured ribs and internal bleeding. That was her cause of death. So it wasn't hypothermia. Just internal bleeding. It wasn't hypothermia. Every person's cause of death was hypothermia, except for the four people in the ravine. Only one of them had hypothermia. Yeah. The next person that I have is Sasha Zolotaryov. He had a camera on him. Yeah. One thing that really creeped me out, Yuri Yudin, who had turned back early on, he had only known the group to have four cameras with them. But those four cameras were found in the tent. And Sasha had a camera on him, which Yuri Yudin couldn't explain. He was surprised when he found that camera. Okay, so... Did Sasha have his own camera, or was that camera placed there? So there are lots of photos on it, but they're all from before they left the tent. He runs out of the of the tent, tent with no shoes. No shoes, but he makes sure to grab his camera. Did he like just coincidentally have it in his hands and ran, or walked casually away from the tent? I suppose. Um. Yeah, that's really strange. He's a weird one, and I don't want to, like, throw him under the bus because I don't really think he had anything to do with this. And even if he did, he was also a victim. Yeah, he suffered really severe injuries as well. He was well-dressed. Like Dubonina, he was missing most of the soft tissue on his face and his eyeballs. What about his tongue? His tongue was there. She was the only one missing a tongue. He had bone exposed in his head, so he suffered a gash enough to expose bone which was on the right side of his head, which was 8 by 6 centimeters in size. That's how much bone was showing on the right side of his head. So something must have, like, really hit him. Hit him, yeah. He had also severe injuries to his chest. On his right side, ribs 2, 3, 4, 5, and 6 were all broken, and in two fractured lines. So Duvanina's left side had the two fractured lines. But Sasha had those two fractured lines on his right side. So were they maybe huddled together when whatever happened happened to them? I thought of that, but they had a severe height difference. They were not the same height at all. That is really smart. Genius energy. (laughs) Wow, okay. No, that makes sense, though. I don't know exactly what their heights were, but I know that she was much shorter than he was. But they suffered the same, essentially, fractured lines on their ribs. Just on opposite sides. I don't know how to explain that. Sasha was the one that had a notebook. The secret notebook that never made it into evidence that only one official saw and explained it as blank. Okay, mm-hmm. so if Sasha can't, I don't think he really had anything to do with this, but if he did, 
maybe they were like, oh, he's taking notes to keep track of this group. Let me take it so nobody knows. That's the only thing that I could think of, too. Because why would it disappear? Um, I don't actually have noted what his cause of death was. His cause of death was chest trauma, officially. Chest trauma. So again, an internal in- injury. Which makes sense. So one thing that I did want to note between Dubinina and Sasha, it was argued that Dubinina could have passed due to her ribs puncturing her atrium. But even though Sasha suffered the same, essentially, injuries to his ribs, that was not... Could they have been less severe, maybe? I mean, they were fully broken. Interesting to note, the two of them had a similar direction and force of injuries, despite the different body shapes of the two, which, in some reports, suggest that the injuries did not occur in the exact same event, despite their similarities. So, all of these injuries, they happened before they died, right? Mm Mm-hmm. So none of these injuries happened post-mortem. I mean, apart from possibly some of the soft tissue on their face missing. Right. But the severe injuries happened pre-mortem. So, Alexander was found wearing quite a bit of clothes. He was wearing a ski jacket that was unzipped and burnt. So suggesting that he took it from the first group after it had suffered some fire damage. In his pockets, he was carrying a key, a safety pin... Blank paper, two pill packages, which ended up being soda and codeine. I don't know what soda is. And a box of matches. He also was wearing socks that had also suffered from fire damage. And he had a bandage on his left ankle, which, due to the state that it was in, was arguably there before they set off on their journey. So, I have this in all capitals. (laughs) Dubonina, who was wearing Kravonashenko's sweater and pants... Those clothes tested radioactive, along with some of Kravonashenko's clothes, though I couldn't confirm that because she took them from Kravonashenko. And Alexandra had specifically the waistband of the sweater and the lower parts of his pants tested radioactive. There wasn't super high levels of radiation, but higher than normal, but not like fatal or anything. Mm-hmm. It's weird to me that only some pieces of their clothing tested radioactive and not all. I don't know how yeah. um, contagious radioactivity is. Like the others, Alexander had a lack of soft tissue around his face, with some parts of his skull exposed. He had specific injuries to his nose. He wasn't missing his nose, but it was really flattened, with his nostrils being compressed, which doesn't necessarily mean that his nose was broken. It was just stuck in a very strange position for a long period of time. Because he was lying on it? That's weird. Yeah. Also, when they say that their skull was exposed, did they mean that it had deteriorated or that it had broken open? My understanding was that there was some sort of gash or injury that led to the skull being exposed. He had a wound behind his ear, and this freaked me out. Specifically, he had a deformed neck. Does it mean deformed like it had been twisted? Like, broken? I don't think deformed as in, like, his head was in a weird position. I think deformed as in he had, like, an indent or, like, a collapse. He had a really bad injury in his left knee, which bled internally. I don't know why this is the case for him. He had softened and whitened skin of the fingers and feet. That can happen in if you're in water for a long period of time. 
It can, but that would suggest that he was in water before he died and to the point that he didn't get frostbite on his fingers like the others did before death. Could he have melted water over the fire? You know what? Honestly, anything here is possible. I had one more note on him which was highlighted because apparently this was important. Overall, his skin, in general, had a gray-green color with a tinge of purple. His entire skin. Was he the one with the radioactive clothes? Mm -hmm. Could that have maybe caused it? Radioactivity, I tried to do research on it, and it causes some really strange stuff to happen. I'll get into it more later, I guess, (laughs) when we get into the theories. Because radioactivity mutates the DNA, the reason that it can cause death I'll get into this later, but I'll just say it now. It's because it can alter too many cells to the point that the body can't repair itself. And it rips itself apart. So, there was an interview done with, I want to say Dyatlov's sister, who did not see his body. Her mother saw his body and stated that he was orange. Yeah, I've heard that, and that their hair was white. White. Doesn't sit well with me at all. I also didn't have the cause of death for Alexander. He was the only one of the group of four who died of hypothermia. Which leads us into the last of the four. Nikolai Thibault-Brignold. So he was arguably the best dressed out of everyone. One of the theories that I saw suggested that he and Zolotov may have been outside when this all happened. So I just wanted to note what he was wearing. Oh, like outside of the tent when whatever when, happened in the tent, they had yes. to get out? And then the others, for some reason, ripped through the tent. But he was just chilling with no shoes on outside I the tent? I don't know. He had on a fur hat and a woolen hat, shirt, a woolen sweater, which was inside out, which is commonly done to help get rid of the moisture. So you turn it inside out to get, like, the dry side of the sweater. Jacket, gloves. Um, in his pocket, he had three coins, a comb, paper. He was wearing his undergarments, sweatpants, cotton pants. Ski pants, woolen socks, and he actually did have some form of felt boots. He had two watches, which is interesting. I don't know why someone would have two watches on. One stopped at 8.14 p.m., and the other stopped at 8.39 p.m. He had multiple fractures to his skull, hemorrhaging on his lower forearm, and his cause of death was due to the injuries resulted from a severe throw or fall. So it's argued that his injuries could not be explained by simply falling down because it does not coincide with the lack of soft tissue damage that would have ensued. Yeah, it seems like none of them fell because there wasn't a whole lot of outward damage besides the deterioration to the soft tissue. The first five that were found had, it seems to be more like abrasions and bruises to the outside of their body. But these four had much more severe injuries, as you said, to the inside and a, almost like a lack of outward injuries. Weird. Very weird. And that was all that I had on Nikolai. So his cause of death was determined to be skull injury. Okay, so that's that. Pretty gruesome. <laughs> yeah, hard to research. I appreciate you being the real MVP here and, like, doing that research, because I could not. Shall we move on to some of the forensic reports and what the coroner said? Let's move into it. 
So, like we said, the forensic pathologist said that they had passed due to massive force trauma equivalent to a car crash, but mm-hmm. not caused by falling into the ravine. It's similar to an argument that was made on one of the first two, how their injuries couldn't coincide from falling from the tree because it doesn't make sense with the size of branches and the sturdiness of the tree and the lack of their internal injuries. Also, apparently they had died six to eight hours after their last meal, so probably that was lunch, and then they were preparing to get dinner ready, it seemed, when whatever happened. Which would explain why his watch stopped between 8.14 and 8.39? Yeah, unless they survived a few days. Unless they did survive a few days. But again, I couldn't find anywhere what the stomach contents of these four were. Also, in 2019... Russian authorities actually relaunched this investigation. I found some reports saying that this was due to the fact that there were currently 75 theories as to what happened to these hikers. Yeah, this is really probably one of the greatest unsolved mysteries of all time. It really was a tragedy what happened to them, and it hurts that their family didn't get answers before they passed on. Yeah. So I'm glad that they reopened the investigation. I'm not pleased with the outcome. No. In July 2020, so pretty recently, it was actually determined the group had fled their tent due to an avalanche and had died of hypothermia. If someone can actually explain to me how this happened, I might believe it for maybe one or two, perhaps, but not the whole group. They're like going with the simplest and easiest to explain explanation that doesn't actually explain anything. They could have all died of hypothermia. I'm not going to dispute that, but it doesn't explain what happened prior to their death. Yes, 100%. Because obviously something happened. They didn't just die of hypothermia. Something happened. And I don't think it was an avalanche for reasons that we will get into. Originally, on May 28th, they closed the case and had already completed all the funerals and autopsies. Some of the sites that I saw had some interviews with family members. Two that I can recall had stated that before they knew it, they were off to their funeral. Like, the officials had come to their door to state something had happened. One of the parents were taken to confirm the identity. And they had gone to a funeral, all within the span of a few days. Yeah, they didn't really have time to process anything and think about it or ask more questions about what happened. And, like I said, May 28th, after all the funerals and autopsy had been completed... They stated that the cause of death for all of them, apart from the few that had specifically trauma, was hypothermia. So that struck me as really odd. The interviews that I had read about, it struck the families as really odd as well. Like, the officials seemed to be pushing everything, and the families didn't actually plan the funerals. The authorities did. That's interesting. We will get into government cover-up a little bit more. Okay. Just some things I wanted to discuss to kind of clarify before we move on to the theories. Okay, yeah, let's get into some questions. The three people found heading towards the tent, do you think that they were leaving the fire that the Urias had built? Or do you think they were separate groups entirely? So, there was one theory that I found that I felt explained what happened. Not in terms of what happened to all of them, but in terms of their movements. So it's thought that they left the tent and they all ended up at the forest where they were all together in a group. 
And the two Yuris either passed before the three left to go back to the tents to get more clothes or get their stove or to get something from the tent and then come back. Not sure if the Yuris passed before they headed off to the tent or while they were gone to the tent. And the remaining four, when the three on their way to the tent never returned, realized that they needed to find a better shelter to survive. Okay. So maybe a oh. couple of them went off on their own for whatever reason, and then the other ones went to find them? That could definitely be. That could explain why Nikolai and Alexander were considerably two of the best dressed if they were already outside. Right. They had left for some reason. I keep getting chills because this is scary. I didn't expect it to be this terrifying, but I'm terrified. Should we talk about the avalanche theory just to kick it off? Okay. The theory goes, and this is what the authorities have decided is fact. They say that an avalanche started in the middle of the night and that they all ran out of the tent, didn't grab any of their shoes or food or anything to help keep them warm, and then they passed due to the cold. But the reason why I don't think it's an avalanche is because there's like a certain steepness that avalanches can happen at, and it wasn't steep enough for that. Like it was steep, but it but wasn't not that quite. Steep. Yeah, yeah. There also wasn't signs of this. There wasn't trees blown down or ten feet of snow. The tent wasn't completely buried. Yeah, the tent was not buried, which is documented with photos, and they found their footprints. Like leaving the tent cannot be an avalanche. I know it's, like, the simplest explanation, but it's not what happened. If it's the simplest explanation, I might be able to believe it if someone can explain to me, given the actual proof that we have, how this could have happened. So, I'm calling BS on the avalanche theory, (laughs) and we can move on from that boring one. Okay, let's move on. So, infrasound is a sound that you can't hear, kind of like a dog whistle, out of the range of human hearing, but it it still affects you somehow. Infrasound can be caused by the way that the mountain was shaped. When the air conditions and the physical structures are just right, the airflow essentially breaks off into multiple vortexes. It's a phenomenon called the Kármán vortex. If you imagine a wind going in one straight direction, and somewhere down the line, something blocks off half of it. So it then swirls around that block and into a swirl. And then the rest keeps going, but eventually encounters another block that blocks half of it off. And it goes into another swirl. So you end up with multiple swirls like that, which causes vibrations in whatever structures are there. Again, in such a low frequency that you cannot hear it. You're so smart. Genius energy coming (laughs) at you unfiltered. (laughs) This sound has been known to be able to cause feelings of intense fear and confusion. It's actually really an effective tool. It's even been used by the military as a weapon, and they can use it on like cruise ships in order to keep pirates away. Vibrations can grow and feed off of each other. And I did read one report which stated that it is possible for these vibrations caused by infrasound to get so violent that you can hear an unnatural hum in the structures. So if somehow all these vortexes ended up feeding off each other, creating such a power that the mountain and the trees and whatever all started to vibrate so violently that it caused a sound or a hum, an unnatural hum, to come out... 
could have really freaked them out. Yeah. This is why this kind of makes sense to me. If the hum happened and Nikolai and Alexander went outside to see what they could see and they couldn't find anything and they yelled to the other campers, you guys, I don't know what's going on. And the other campers just went, okay, well, let's just wait it out. And they fed off each other and the hum got louder. I could imagine just the fear sinking into the point that you just need to go. You need to get out no matter what, just to see what's out there. And they cut holes in the tent to peek through and they didn't see anything. And they left, cut more holes to go out, which was why when they got out and they didn't see anything, they didn't run manically away. They walked because they couldn't see anything. This could have contributed to a phenomenon called paradoxical undressing. So if these people are already freaking out because of this hum and their minds are going to weird places, especially their hypothermia setting in, it could have caused them to think that the logical solution in this freezing cold climate is to take off their clothes. And that's what paradoxical undressing does. If you start to freeze, sometimes people start feeling an intense burning sensation. They take off their clothes because they think, I'm too warm. I have experienced something like this. There were some times in the winter as a child that I refused to go outside with my winter jacket on and would just go outside with like my shirt on and would play in the snow and whatever. And my hands would be so cold. My hands would be burning and I would get back inside and they would burn even worse to the point that I couldn't do anything to make them any better apart from lift up my sleeves because the touch was irritating. It's not the same thing, but it's sort of similar. Well, because we live in Canada, we do sometimes experience pretty cold temperatures, especially when we were kids and we would actually go outside and play in it. Yeah, for sure. And I know what you mean. When you get cold enough, especially if you come out of the cold, like you start to burn. It burns. And I know that these people were logical enough to know I'm freezing and I need to keep my clothes on. But if this hum was getting to them to that point, they maybe weren't thinking straight. Yeah. So I did research some other cases of this paradoxal undressing. And some other experienced hikers who got to that point during hypothermia stated that they at some point realized what was going on and forced themselves to put all of their clothes back on because they knew that if they did this, they were going to pass. I don't know how I feel about that because these guys had just as much experience as these other hikers who realized in the middle of it. So if it's mixed in with some other strange phenomenon going on that's causing them to freak out and not be in their right minds, that would certainly explain the paradoxical undressing. But on its own, I don't know if that's enough. But maybe initially they felt the heat and they took off their clothes and then yeah. for some reason ran out into the snow, got lost realized, didn't have their clothes, couldn't get back. That's a good point. I do have to say something to kind of dispute this theory, although I do pretty much believe in the sound at least a little bit. So the infrasound effects are actually really only affect 22% of people. Apparently there was an experiment where they did a concert and they would play this infrasound in the background and 22% of people started freaking out a little bit. The rest of them were fine. I wonder what group of people that was. If it was, like, specific to a group of people, like a group of people between the ages of blah and blah, or if it was just scattered in between people. Right, because this group of people were younger, they would probably be able to hear the sound better than Mm -hmm. older people. Your hearing can deteriorate from the time that you're a teenager to the time that you're, like, 25. It can be completely different. It Mm -hmm. deteriorates really quickly. 
it's kind of unlikely that the 22% of people would have been included in all of these nine people. But at the same time, if it was happening enough that it was making an actual humming sound that they could hear audibly, that would have probably been enough to freak them out. Maybe not enough to, like, cause this. Yeah, enough to to start something, at least. Yeah. Also, the effects of this infrasound isn't supposed to be as intense as, like, causing somebody to run out of the tent in fear. Yeah. It's more of, like a panic attack sensation and like people who have panic attacks would possibly leave wherever they were but they wouldn't do it in the middle of a snowstorm when they're this prepared absolutely not like even the most intense panic attacks you're not gonna run out into the freezing cold yeah during a panic attack you are still at least somewhat aware of what's happening and at some point realize that no this is the best place for me to be I do think that the infrasound theory has, like, a lot to do with it, but I don't think it's the only explanation. Like you said, I think it maybe started something. It led to something. See, this is why I do believe that it was a mixture of things that happened to them during this time frame. From all the theories that I read, there wasn't one that could explain everything. So one theory that I saw was that they were all on a drug-induced and natural high. So I learned a fun fact about shrooms. They were said to have grown in that general area. So them being on drugs, specifically shrooms, could account for the manic behavior of getting out of the tent, but not necessarily why there weren't any traces found in their body. Because I didn't find any toxicology report that stated they had forms of an unnatural substance in them. Would it have been too late for the toxicology reports to catch that? I don't think for the first two, because the first two were not that far into digesting their food. Okay, interesting. I looked up shrooms after this because I was like, well, this is a weird theory and I don't know anything about them. And apparently the trees that grew in the forest, like 1.25 kilometers away, shrooms were set to grow on the base of those trees. But I don't know if they grow in the dead of winter. And I don't think this group of people would have been the type to be like, oh, these are probably edible. Honestly, and I don't think they would have gone, you know what, this is arguably the most important expedition of my life to get my final certification. Let's do some shrooms. I think a lot of people believe this theory because this was a group of young people. But you have to remember, this was 1959. It's not 2020. People were a little (laughs) bit different back then, especially in the middle of a Cold War. Yeah. One point that really disproves any drug theory for me is that the remaining four were coherent enough to make a den, the Dyatlov den, which ultimately could have prolonged their life for however long it did. Also, these were a group of people who had sworn off cigarettes for the expedition. Yeah, good point. The only bit of alcohol they had was for medical use. That also proves that they took this really seriously. They were very serious about it. They weren't smoking cigarettes. They weren't drinking at all. They were just, we have to do this, and this is what we're going to do. Should we talk about the Yeti? Sure. So there was a photo taken that was apparently one of the last photos. To describe the photo, it's out of focus because the focus is on the trees in the foreground, but in the background you can see something holding onto a tree and leaning over, and it's just kind of black. It could have been potentially one of the hikers messing around and just taking weird photos and being goofy. They were a high-spirited group. They liked to have their fun. 
Also, I've heard reports that some of them were a part of a newspaper in their school where they covered strange things. Could have been a part of that, but it is a really weird photo. And it is one of the last photos, or the last photo, on one of their cameras. Very spooky. Also, in one of the girl's diaries, I can't find any mention of which one, the one thing that she wrote with no other explanation surrounding it, she said, So now we know that Mank are real. And Mank means Yeti. Mank is a Nancy <laughs> word for Yeti. That's all she had. And if she had been doing that, writing that for her newspaper, why wouldn't mm. she have put more info? And why didn't she yeah. put more info at all? Was she writing it as whatever happened happened and she couldn't finish it? She couldn't continue, maybe? Oh my goodness. <laughs> it's really weird. There's theories that maybe it had attacked Rustam while the mm. others ran away because he had pretty severe injuries to his head. And then after it had left and they were trying to make their way back to the tent, natural elements got to them. So there are some aspects of this theory that I could see happening and there are some that I couldn't see happening. Not a ton is known about the Yeti and how it would hunt and how territorial it is, how it would defend its ground. So I think that the Yeti theory would explain their initial panic and some of the extreme trauma in the last group before that was found. Understanding that the Yeti is an animal, it could have appeared originally, causing them to leave their tent. I'm thinking of animals that stalk their prey. So it could have shown itself to get them to possibly disperse. If it was an intelligent animal, it could have blocked the entrance to the tent. True, which would have explained how they had to get out of the tent. And like animals that stalk their prey, it would have hid and just watched for a while until it found a good opportunity, which could explain why the group supposedly was at this campfire that lasted for two hours and why some members of the team scaled the tree. It could have broken the branches because humans' weight alone was not supposed to be enough to break thick branches. Which could have happened after the team of three had left. Which wouldn't explain, though, why the other group of four decided to just camp in the ravine. Because that's not safe. If you're trying to save yourself from some sort of animal, ravine's probably not the place you want to be. Well, maybe they couldn't, or they didn't want to go back to the tent because they knew that it had gone to the tent. And it knew where the tent was. Maybe they were trying to hide. I hate everything about that. (laughs) Stuff freaks me out, man. (laughs) I also wanted to note that this could explain the camera that Alexander took with him had some very strange photos as the last photos on the camera roll. And as I mentioned in a previous episode, supernatural beings such as Bigfoot have been said to make cameras malfunction. There were a total of 11 photos that were found on his camera which was damaged by water because it was in the spring that they were found. The first photo is called Three Heads. So is that supposed to be the three people? I really don't know. Some diaries did note what time they had supper. So based on that, it's argued that between 9.30 and 11.30, they left the tent. So these photos were theorized to have been taken between 9.30 and 11.30. The next photo is called Lynx. Don't know how to describe that. It's just dark, and then there's a white sort of meshy thing in the middle taking up most of it. Since we've discussed otherworldly creatures malfunctioning things, could they be trying to take a picture of it? I would believe that. 
I wouldn't believe that theory for the next coming photo, so. So photo number four is called horn. I don't think that looks like a horn at all. It kind of looks like a Yeti squatting, possibly. Oh, it does. Or maybe it was just one of, like, a person squatting. But that is why are they white? It looks like a Yeti squatting. Remember we're going to the next photo, which is called Jaws. Why are these names like this? <laughs> I think the authorities named them, but I don't understand some of the names. This one should have been called Yeti. Photo number five called Jaws. I don't know. It kind of looks like a scary version of Pac-Man. Yeah. With, <laughs> like, if Pac-Man was turned into an alligator's mouth. Like an alligator head. Yeah. So that could be water damage. This one freaked me out. Photo number six is called Mushroom with a Face. Which is scary. That's an actual face. And you can see eyes and, like, the hands and the legs. It's either a really scary-looking cloud from a nuclear explosion, or it's like a Yeti. Okay, so to describe the photo, in one corner, it must be water damage. Yeah, the, just like the a... lower right corner has some pretty significant water damage because it's just black, like pitch black in that corner with a white border. So yeah. that's the water damage. It looks like there's ground. As you look further up the photograph, it gets blacker, so the sky, but closer to the bottom of the photograph, it looks like it's the white snowy ground. So you can tell that this thing is standing on the ground. You can kind of make out two legs standing together and two arms, and then you can see two glowing eyes. There's eyes. I'm so freaked out. The next one is also kind of scary, actually, which is called Eagle One Light. I think this is depicting the snowfall, and this is some sort of orb. Photo number nine is entitled Chicken, which doesn't look like anything. I don't see anything in this photo. It's just looks like it's water damaged. Yeah, exactly. Photo number 10 is called Plane 1, which looks like it's taken in the sky. Just because the whole photo pretty much is black, apart from some really white portion in the middle left... Which is supposed to, I guess, look like a plane. The reason I think this is of the sky is because the photos that include the ground include the snow. So they're a lighter gray than the sky part, which is just black. And photo number 11 is called plane 2, which is, again, it looks like a more of a photo of the sky. Possibly some snow at the bottom, it's a little lighter. And a crazy white figure that's not a blob in the center of the photo. See, I, I promise these were not as scary as the mushroom photo. Thank you. <laughs> Let's talk about aliens. Let's talk about aliens. So another group of hikers saw strange orange lights in the sky close to where the Dyatlov group was. On the same night that all of this occurred. Right. So some people think that this could maybe have been aliens or possibly government testing. And it was actually seen by at least 30 people all throughout February, so it happened on multiple nights, even after this group passed. These orbs kind of just look like super bright balls of fire going mm. through the sky, not in a way that a meteor would. They would kind of meander their way around for like 15 to 20 minutes. And they didn't make any sound. They didn't explode or anything like a military weapon probably would. Besides the few photos that we have, there wasn't a lot of photos of these orbs that they probably would have captured on camera if they had seen them. And they also were not noted in diaries that the group had. Yeah, which is another important fact. But it's very possible that the government could have confiscated that evidence. Mm -hmm. 
Like you said, there was another group that reported that. There were also a number of Mansi people who noted that. Also, members of the search party, when they were searching for these people, also saw the lights. So the lights are corroborated by multiple people. Mm-hmm. So we are pretty confident that the lights actually happened. One of the main investigators, what did you say his name was? Lev Ivanov. He really thought that there was something weird about these lights. So apparently he claimed that the tops of the trees on the forest line were burnt. He went away for a few days during this investigation and then came back. I think he went to Moscow. But when he came back, he was ordered to remove all serious mentions of this from his reports. He kind of switched on a dime from thinking there's something really weird about this to, nope, I'm a Blanche. Before he died in the 90s, he actually came forward and stated that he did think that the lights had something to do with it. He said that the lights were unable to be explained by science. Which is a big statement to make. Yeah. So he did eventually come forward and claim that there was something more to go on near the end of his life when he didn't have to worry about it so much. So one of the theories is that the two men standing outside saw the orbs, everyone was freaked out, and they ran which wouldn't explain why the footprints weren't manic. And then they got to the tree line thinking they'd have cover, and one or two members of the group wanted to climb the trees to check on the orbs. One of the orbs found them, came over top, burnt the top of the trees, and used some force to throw them down, which would explain why some of the tree branches were broken. There's a couple of photos on the camera that Sasha had. And they depict what looks like an orb in the sky. Two orbs in the sky. Maybe Mm kind of close. Because they looked very, very bright. Yeah. They didn't quite look like they were totally connected. So maybe there was an explosion or some sort of scientific experiment gone wrong. Or maybe aliens were involved somehow. We don't know. We can't know. I don't think there is any way to know. But yes, the lights are very strange. I do have a theory that they were killed by the Mansi people in the area. So this specific region that they set up camp in was considered to be sacred, being that the Mansi people lived further away from the rest of the main civilization there. They were weathered. They knew how to survive in the mountains. They knew what to do. And in some of the research that I did on elevations, like how people who climb Mount Everest, they go a certain distance and they get used to it, and then they go a little farther and they get used to it. These people were already used to the conditions there, so they would have arguably done better than people who weren't used to it would have. So one thing that disproved this for me was that it ended up being a Mansi person who found the remaining four people. Also, a lot of the Mansi people helped with the search party. They were a actively, lot. Yeah, they were actively trying to help find, find these people. Yeah, because a number of the people had noted about the lights. If they were trying to just stay away from everything, wouldn't they have just not said anything? I think that this theory stems from the story that a few years prior to this, there was a geologist who was in the same area who ended up being killed. But that has never been proved. So it's yeah. just like a legend. I've heard that they had actually communicated with the group ahead of time. If I remember correctly, it was one of these people who ended up helping them transport some of their stuff to a destination. I don't think it was this destination. I think it was the one right before it. They had a sled that they helped them transport some of their extra gear before they stored it in that shed. Yeah. 
they were used to people going onto their land and traveling. So I don't think that they would have had anything to do with their deaths, especially considering the way that everybody died doesn't seem like they were killed by human hands. Exactly. They were a peaceful group. I don't think that they had anything to do with this. No, I don't think they had anything to do with it either. But it's an interesting theory, and it is one that we had to talk about because people do believe it. Yes. So, I made a mind map for today's episode because I knew there was so much stuff that I wanted to cover. And on the mind map, one of the parts was outlandish theories. This theory I thought was very interesting, though I don't necessarily believe it. It's the theory of gravity fluctuation. So, in the study of gravity, it is suggested that there are parts of the Earth where gravity changes due to the moving plates or other shifts in the environment. So the theory is that they ended up sitting up and they dressed down for bed after having supper, and all of a sudden, a quote-unquote decreased gravity corridor began to lift up the tent and move them down the corridor. This theory falls upon the belief that the tent was originally settled higher up on this mountain than it was found to be. And the theory is that while they were in the air, they tried to get out of the tent and they were so frantic that they had to cut through it. And the few of them found between the tent and the tree line got out of the tent beforehand and fell. So they moved themselves out of this corridor of gravity fluctuation and fell on the ground And the other ones made it to the tree line and were dropped from a high location, which would explain the really severe injuries internally some of them suffered, but not much else. I don't think this is real. It's a theory. It's a theory. (laughs) That's right. Is this Uh, gravity fluctuation thing proven scientifically? No. Not at all. (laughs) (laughs) I think there are some quote-unquote scientists that are like, no, it's a thing. But apart from that, I don't think so. It's an interesting theory, but I'm going to say no. Me too. Yeah. (laughs) Probably not. Most likely not. Maybe, but no. Okay, do we just have government cover map to talk about? I think so. I did some research specifically on radiation and hypothermia. So, starting with radiation, the scientific understanding of radiation is that it mutates the DNA which can possibly cause too much mutated DNA for your body to try and repair. And your body just gets overrun with these mutated cells that don't do what they're supposed to do. So that's what would cause the demise. And generally speaking, radiation does not affect the human brain until much later. It takes more than a few days for you to feel the results of radiation on the brain. So any thought that they might have been exposed to radiation and this caused them to freak out and lose their minds and that's why all this strange stuff happened doesn't make sense when you consider that fact. Could they have been exposed prior? Sure. Which then doesn't explain why there weren't signs on their body. So you'll see it on the body first. You'll see it in their actions a few days later. One thing I did not know about radiation is that the higher you are, the more radiation you are exposed to because there is less of an atmospheric shield to soften the radiation from space. So when you're in an airplane, you're exposing yourself to radiation. Weird. Could the radiation have caused their skin to turn orange and their hair to turn gray like some people said they looked like at their funeral? Yeah, definitely. Some interviews with family members noted that it looked like they had an orange like glow or an orange hue to their skin 
Would that have happened after death or before? Hmm, that is a good question. I personally would assume that it would have had to happen before because I don't know how much you can alter the body after the temperature has already dropped to the point that it's frozen, which it would have in the circumstances they were in. I wonder how quickly that could happen, but their bodies could change so much. I tried to find out if there's actually a spectrum, but I couldn't find anything. It's all based on how used to the climate the individual people are. If this had occurred pre-freezing, people that were more used to the cold terrain would have taken them a little bit longer for them to freeze than people who are not used to it. So arguably, some of the hikers that had led their own expeditions before their bodies would be more used to the harsh terrains than some of the other hikers who hadn't right. had that much experience out. Okay. Even though they all had a ton of experience. Interesting. And then I had some other facts on hypothermia, which occurs when the body reaches 21 degrees Celsius. But like I said, how long that takes depends on how weathered the body is to the surroundings. Their bodies were arguably prepared for the journey. So wind is a factor to consider when you're talking about hypothermia cases because it accounts for a lot of the lost heat. It takes away the warm aura that you have around your body. And alcohol will alter your experience of hypothermia because it'll make you feel warm on the inside but will cause your blood vessels to expand, which will result in more rapid heat loss from the surface of your skin. And it can also affect your body's natural response to the first warning signs. So when you're getting cold, you'll shiver. But if you are on alcohol or on drugs you may not respond to those and find yourself getting stuck with the final response of hypothermia, which is paradoxical undressing. But they were probably not on drugs. Or I don't know. believe so, no. <laughs> so we've mentioned before, this is Canada, and it can get pretty cold. And I thought it was interesting to note that the government of Canada has issued a statement with the warning signs. So first, you'd experience shivering, reduced circulation. Second, you'd experience yourself slowing down, a weakened pulse, Lack of coordination, irritability, confusion, sleepy behavior. And third, severe slowing, weak or absent respiration, and pulse, and a loss of consciousness. One more thing to note. The atmosphere starts to drop around 4,000 feet. And where they were was around 3,500 feet. You're supposed to start noticing it in yourself around 4,000 feet. They were pretty close. They were at 3,500 feet. So they were more susceptible. I think so. Okay. So the reason this is in there is because the atmosphere drop, if you don't regulate yourself properly, can cause your mind to not get enough oxygen, which can cause you to be confused or irritable or panicked. It can lead you to make some decisions that you wouldn't normally, which could aid in hypothermia. The fact that they cut their tent open kind of doomed them. For sure. Even if they had been able to stay in their tent, unless they had stitched it up somehow, it's probably pretty yeah. thick material. I don't know if you could have done that. They were kind of doomed at that point. See, the thing that I don't quite understand is why they didn't just go back. Like, why didn't they turn around and go back to the village or go back to the shed where they store their stuff? They were headed in the wrong direction. Well, I mean, it was the middle of a snowstorm. That's true. Probably couldn't see where they were going. Yeah, and if they were under whatever condition they were that they cut their tent, they would have been probably disoriented and may have just confused the direction they were trying to go in. 
that's what gets me. Like, the fact that they were so panicked that they cut their tent open, dooming mm. themselves, mm. essentially, and then walked away from their tent without shoes. Yeah, that gets me too. That doesn't make any sense whatsoever. I have one more thing before we get into the final theory. They are not the only group to have perished in this region. There are a bunch of strange things that have happened. A plane crash. Nine Mancy Hunters died in the area. So in this map that you have here, the different tragedies that happened, nine Mancy Hunters dying close to there. You've got nine people dying in a plane crash close to there. And then you got nine bodies found, which may be the, the outlaw people, but also may not be because it's, it's not, not specified. And it's not in English. That's a really weird coincidence. Why nine? Does that mean that if Yuri Yudin had stayed with them, they would have been okay? Oh my goodness. I also want to just insert here another weird coincidence. When the group left the Ural Polytechnic Institute, they were gathering together in room 531. And then one of the Fialov group was found with a watch that stopped at 531. So that's a weird coincidence. Without any further ado, let's get into the final theory. Government cover-up. I just want to preface this by saying it was kind of in the middle of the Cold War and tensions were really high. So it's not a completely bizarre theory that maybe the government had something to do with this. Definitely not. So as we've discussed, some of their clothing did have radiation on it, which could have been a result of some sort of government testing going on in the area at the time. Which would make sense, because if the Mance people in the area called us the Dead Mountain, it would make sense that the government would go, oh, there's nothing here, therefore it'd be safe for us to test. Right. Also, apparently a camera and a diary were missing. So did they take it? Did it just get lost in the snow somehow? See, this is kind of strange, right? Because there are a number of items that just were not recovered, such as the knife, their shoes, there was a notepad, there was a diary that's missing, and there was an extra camera that was missing, and supposedly Sasha brought a secret camera on the Why missing. Why did he bring a secret camera? But I kind of do want to talk about Sasha a little bit. Like I said, I don't really think he had anything to do with this, but he is kind of the outsider of the group because he joined last minute and he's like 20 years older than them. He also seemed to have quite a bit more experience, although all of them were super experienced. Mm -hmm. He was a World War II veteran and he was an instructor. There is a theory that he could have been a spy keeping track of them or the mm -hmm. government. Yeah, there's quite a few theories around the idea that some of them were spies, and out of what I've seen, Sasha is a common member of the spy team. There was a thought that he was just there to make sure that they didn't get up to any funny business. There's a theory that I saw where he was sent along with them to deliver radioactive or nuclear-type materials to CIA agents that were waiting in the forest for them, and then something went wrong. Yeah, he also didn't use his real name. I'm not sure which name was not the proper name because he had three. <laughs> I do want to mention, though, he was a World War II veteran. Could he have maybe had PTSD? Um, actually, yeah, as soon as you said that. And then something happened that made him kind of freak out and then yeah, cut open the tent. That could be. There are a number of theories that could explain the beginning part, but there's not a lot that can explain the rest of the events so could have had some sort of experience that caused him to freak out and cut the tent open. But that still doesn't explain why there was radiation found on them, how they all ended up passing the way they did, why they climbed the tree, why there were certain soft tissue missing. 
Yeah. Just stuff that doesn't make sense. And the internal injuries. Again, like, all of these theories have some sort of weight to them, but they don't explain everything. Definitely. He was a victim, too. He died, too. He had one of the most horrible deaths out of all of them, it seems. So, again, if he did have something even a little bit to do with this, it's still tragic what happened to him. Exactly. The government cover-up theory kind of has multiple theories. Yeah, there's a lot of branches off of that theory. So one of the theories is that they were being followed. Because maybe they were in an area that the government or the military wasn't too happy with them being Because they were testing or something. Yeah. Yeah. So they could have been followed, and then maybe they discovered that they were being followed, and they confronted them. Maybe a tussle happened. Actually, that could explain the defensive wounds. And it kind of also explains why Zaneda, she had a baton bruise on her. Yes. And Ludmilla, who was known to be kind of talkative, had her tongue removed. It's kind of messed up if that would have happened, because if something had happened and things had gotten out of hand, wouldn't the military just shot them? You would think, and you would think that they wouldn't leave them there to be discovered. They could have just been trying to scare them, and once they all scattered, they were like, my job's done, and then left. They thought they would get back on their own. Which doesn't explain the serious internal injuries of the last four, unless they came back. Right. Nothing explains what happened to the last four could not have been caused by humans, but it seems like other things were caused by humans, like the physical outward injuries, not the internal ones, but the outward ones probably would have covered it up better. They would have just disappeared them if they needed to. I would think so. And they wouldn't have left any camera footage or diary entries to allude to anything suspicious. Like, even if they had a special weapon, they would have left everything as hypothermia. Unless they were trying to distract their citizens by keeping a little bit of mystery surrounding their deaths so they wouldn't be thinking about what's going on with the Cold War. War. Not the best way to go about this. But possible. Also, their funerals were super controlled by the government. Their families didn't really have any part. The government didn't want them to be buried together at the same time. Like, they didn't want them to be buried in the same cemetery. They didn't want them to be buried on the same day or anything. They wanted them separate. That's so weird. They also didn't want open casket. And they tried to control who could come to the funeral, which does not seem like their job at all. Absolutely not. See, this was so weird to me, because the idea that a government plans a funeral above the family is weird. And the time span in which this occurred, like I said, there were two interviews with two family members who stated that within a couple days, they had been informed of their family members passing. One of the parents was sent to identify them, and the funeral happened. And this was all in just a few days. That's bizarre. Very Also, they had to be transported back home by a helicopter, and one of the nurses involved in this said that there were actually 11 bodies, and two of those bodies were kept separate. To remind you, there were only nine people in the Diablo group. So, who were the other two? I'm spooked. Honestly spooked. So, going off of the theory that they were being followed, or the military had found them and weren't happy with what they were doing, maybe they had all gotten into such a bad tussle that they all died. Some of them could have put up such a good fight that they took two of the opposers. One final thing, the helicopter pilot that flew the bodies back home, he was actually a military pilot, so he was kind of in the know of what was going on. Maybe he didn't know exactly what was happening, but he kind of knew more than we would. So he actually refused to fly the bodies back unless they were in zinc-like coffins. So zinc, interestingly enough, doesn't protect against radiation or anything, but it actually protects against biological hazards. 
Yeah, I just wanted to repeat back what the actual reasoning was for them to not fly them. His reasoning was because it was outside of the spectrum of duties. They put them in zinc-like coffins? I think they put them in actual zinc-like coffins. Okay, wow, to show you how serious it actually is. So that begs the question, like, why did he think that they had to be in zinc-like coffins? Was there disease? Was there mold? I don't understand. So that's all the theories we have. Final thoughts? What do you think happened to them? So, I mean, like we said, government reopened the case back in 2019. Apparently, the cause of death was hypothermia for them all. Not my theory. I strongly believe that more than one thing happened to them. Honestly, I believe that something like infrasound happened in the beginning, just because that would explain why, as soon as they got out of the tent, they weren't panicked. And then why they had to climb up the tree to look to see what was going on. And then I think part of what happened next was just they were in the elements and they weren't prepared enough. And then what happened next, I think, was the government decided to test weapons. And they were caught in the wrong place at the wrong time. What do you believe? I kind of believe that a combination of infrasound, the altitude, and probably Sasha having maybe a little bit of after effects of the war, me being more susceptible to these things. Between all of those factors, I think that maybe, I guess, they just freaked out and cut open their tent and decided to leave. I don't know what happened to them. I don't know. I don't know why they have internal injuries and not outward injuries to the extent that they should. I don't know why they look like they had been fighting each other or something. I don't know what those pictures are. I don't know what happened to them. But I agree with you that it was a combination of many things and that very likely there was government testing going on that caused some of this. Specifically the more horrific injuries. To kind of wrap this up, I just want to mention the Diatlov Foundation that was founded in 1999 to investigate this case further as well as preserve the memories of this group. And I just think that's a really important thing. And it is important to remember that while this is a very interesting mystery, it's also a tragedy, that they were a very young group of people Mm -hmm. and they seemed like they had a lot ahead of them. And they were people. They're more than just a story. They had lives and names. And I don't think that whatever happened to them was any real fault of their own because they were a smart, dedicated group. Absolutely. And my heart goes out to them and their families that probably never got the answers they needed, but they deserved answers, and I hope one day we do get answers. But until then, we will keep thinking about it and talking about it and wondering. Yeah. If there's one mystery I could know the answer to, it would be this one. Definitely this one. So that was the Diatlov Pass incident. Thank you for joining us again. Thank you for listening to Weird Things in Wine. Oh, we should cheers out. Oh, yes. Stick around for some bloopers. You are a cool kid. I just collected slugs. (laughs) That's me now. (laughs) The slugs and snails are my life. Honestly, if horses were me, I'd start running. Uh, Yeah, which is probably the wrong thing to do. The wrong thing entirely. (laughs) I cannot outrun a horse. I can't outrun my hedgehog. Yeah. That stuff gives you the, the heaves. Yeah, the heaves. <laughs> Not quite yeah. the jeebies, but the, like, no, the, the heaves. heaves. <laughs> yeah, exactly. <laughs> They're like the Avengers of hiking. So he wasn't missling, um, he, 
What did I just say? <laughs> Miscellane? <laughs> I was going to say, it looks like a Yeti taking a poop, and then I was like, no, squatting is more appropriate. <laughs> Blob. <laughs> Blob. <laughs> Pirates? Pirates. Like, like current day? Current day. Pirates still exist. Not like the way that they did oh, back okay. then. They're not cool anymore. I see. There must have been a reason they couldn't have been in their tent anymore. I'm so freaking confused. <laughs> I don't know what happened to them. Okay, were there any serial killers around the area? Who this was their like motive, or they were like, what is it called? They're they're uh, um shucks. They're um not memo or ammo. Mo mo. <laughs> yeah, that. They're mo. That needs to be a blooper. <laughs> <laughs>